Today, join myself and Nightcrime as we go over four disturbing, mysterious, and unsolved true crime cases. The link to Nightcrime's channel will be in the description. I highly recommend you check them out. So without further ado, let's step into the darkness. Karen Hills, 21 years old, was a woman living in Ipswich, happily with her fiancé, Peter Ruffles, and their baby daughter, Emily. On the 20th of November 1993, Peter would return home to a worried wife. While he was out at the pub, his wife had heard mysterious noises. This was cause for concern as the area they lived in had experienced some break-ins recently, and when she went to investigate, she would discover someone turning the door handle trying to get in. The following day, Peter would ask Karen if she wanted to go with him to see her parents, but she said that she would rather stay home with their daughter and get on with the housework. Peter would exit the house into the snowy weather for work at around 3.50pm for his shift at the bus depot, and at 4.15pm he would be visited by Karen's parents. They asked him to have a look at their car as they were having troubles, and he took this opportunity to tell them that Karen was staying home. With this news, they decided that they would instead go and visit her later that day. They left the bus depot and made their way to Karen. They would arrive at her house around 4.40pm and notice that the front door to their daughter's home was slightly open, which was very unusual, especially with the snowy weather outside. They decided to quit knocking and open the door, and they were greeted with smoke filling the house. To their shock, they would then find the source, the body of their daughter which had been stabbed multiple times and then set on fire. Emily, Karen's daughter, was discovered in the same room, but luckily she had not been injured. The police arrived at the scene, and after a sweep they had discovered some missing items from the home. This meant that they could not rule out the possibility of a random burglary. One of the items missing from the home was a multicoloured purse. This was apparently a very common item, however, so using that to try and find the killer seemed to have been a dead end. So it begs a question. Who killed Karen? And why? Let's draw up a timeline of events. Someone was around the property the day before and possibly attempted to open the door. Karen noticed this and as such the person was possibly scared off or gave up after being unable to open it. The next day, Peter left for work at around 3.50pm. Her parents would arrive at the house at 4.40pm and discover Karen's body and the fire. This leaves a 50 minute time period for the murder to have taken place. At around 4pm, the sun had gone down and darkness had arrived. Around 4.30pm, a man wearing a parka coat with a fur hood was seen by two men down an alleyway connecting the street that Karen lived on to another street. The two men have said that they considered asking the man for the time, but he was walking too fast to be able to, so they continued past him. A man in a parka coat with a fur hood would then walk out onto the street at the end of the alley, around the same time. This was seen by a couple in a car, and they would describe him as a slim man, around 5'10", 20 to 30 years of age, with short dark hair. It's also noted that he appeared agitated. The two men in the alley would then exit onto Karen Street, where one of them would notice smoke and mention it to their friend. 
The friend would brush it off as condensation and they would continue on their journey. This means that if we are considering the man in the jacket to be a possible suspect, then the murder could have taken place at around 4.30pm. The final reported sighting that night was around 4.40pm. A woman was making her way to a park 400 yards away from Karen's house with her dog when she would spot a man in a parka coat with a fur hood. As she was walking for the park, he was running and bent over, but when he spotted her, he would stare at her. She said that at the time he was acting strangely and she thought that he was up to no good. So that's our current timeline of events. Now let's focus on the murder itself and the facts around it. The door was slightly open, no signs of forced entry, missing items, a fire, multiple stab wounds and no signs of a sexual assault. With no signs of forced entry, it's very possible that Karen opened the door to her killer or they had a key. If they had a key to the home, then that narrows down the list of suspects greatly as I am sure Peter would be aware of who was in possession of one. Nothing was ever reported regarding this however so this possibly wasn't the case. So if the killer did have a key then Karen could have opened the door to them. In that case maybe she knew the killer. The police believe this to be likely for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is that there was a lot of snow that day, at least two inches of it on the ground, and no footprints were found at the back of the house meaning that they likely entered and left through the front door. So, what was the motive? Well, with the missing items, you're probably thinking it was a robbery. But let me tell you what the items were. As mentioned, one was a multicoloured purse, but the others were the murder weapons. Two kitchen knives were missing, and police believed these to most likely be the murder weapons. The fact that there was no signs of sexual assault also rules out the possibility of that. Most of the DNA evidence was destroyed due to the fire, but around 2003, some vomit was recovered on her body from which they were able to get a partial profile. This is likely the only DNA that will ever be recovered from this case. But cold case detectives are not giving up and are quoted as saying they will not stop until they find her killer. The final criminal profile of the killer was created in November 1997 and is as follows. The killer was probably known to Karen, possibly someone she knew from work or in her personal life. He was most likely in his late 20s or mid 30s. He probably lived locally or worked in the area. He was probably of average intelligence. It's likely he had sudden rages when faced with stress or minor irritations and suffered serious mood swings which could have caused problems in the workplace. It's also likely he had mental health issues. It's reported that murder might not have been his initial intention but something caused him to switch and he was motivated by anger. This is backed up by the murder weapon being taken away from the home and fire being started with materials from around the house. Some people believe that Karen didn't know the killer as they believe the person that attempted to enter the night before was the same person that would end up killing her. And maybe the unlocked door was simply a result of the fiancé not locking it after leaving for work. Linda McDaniel, described as hard working by many and someone who showed lots of compassion and kindness for others. 
Her ideal life was to have a good marriage, children, and a job at an elementary school, and she would begin the first step to that in the 1977-1978 school year, when she would be accepted into the role of a first grade teacher at Maplewood Elementary School. The date was December 1st, 1977. And on this day, Linda wouldn't show up to work. This was unlike her, so the principal would call her apartment, but to no avail. He would then call her aunt, Mary, to get her to contact Linda. She tried, but there was still no answer. Mary put down the phone and travelled to Linda's apartment. She tried the door, but it was locked, and she still received no response from Linda. Mary got help from the management of the apartment and together they successfully knocked open the door. They did a sweep of the apartment and they would discover the bathroom door was locked. Once again, they knocked down the door and inside, they would find a deceased Linda kneeling, bent over in the bathtub, her head under eight inches of water, a dish towel in her mouth, her clothes gone, bar underwear, and her hands tied behind her back with a red ribbon. The police arrived and searched the apartment. On the table, they found red ribbons and other accessories that suggested Linda was making Christmas decorations for her class shortly before the murder. An autopsy was carried out and it was discovered that she hadn't been drowned and that she had actually been asphyxiated and her head had been placed under the water when she was already dead, as well as her hands being tied. Her arm was bruised and she had not been sexually assaulted. The apartment showed no signs of a struggle and nothing was taken, ruling out a robbery gone wrong. They also believed that Linda knew her killer. The police also managed to gather multiple fingerprints from the scene. With all that in mind, what suspects do we have? One sticks out a lot. Linda had gone on a date prior to the murder and the man she had seen had attempted to assault her on the day. Linda spoke over the phone the night of her murder to a friend of hers and she told her that the man that had attempted the assault was coming over that night to apologise for his actions. The friend begged her not to let him come over, but she believed that everything would be fine. The call ended, and the friend never found out the name of the man or anything about him. Guards had recently stopped getting the information of visitors, so the man simply entered the apartment, then exited without a trace. It's very likely that he is responsible. That's not the only suspect, however, as over 30 of her ex-boyfriends and acquaintances were questioned. One of her ex-boyfriends was violent prone and short-tempered, while one of her co-workers had gaps in his alibi. However, all of them were cleared, including the co-worker, due to the police not having enough evidence to pursue him. A profile of the killer was released a few years after the murder. Likely a white male between 35 to 40 years old. Socially or occupationally associated with Linda, married at the time of the crime, living with his wife and family but experiencing conflict with his wife. After the murder, it's likely they went to counselling but later separated or divorced. Possibly a military veteran, experiencing financial and marital issues prior to the crime, did not participate in family activities often, spent a lot of time in bars. After the crime, it's possible he drastically reduced his alcohol consumption, had been inside Linda's apartment previously, prior to the crime had no criminal record other than traffic tickets or possibly public intoxication. The police believe this profile could still prove useful. 
Some people believe that there is evidence we don't know, due to some points on the profile being oddly specific. Even with all the facts, there are still lots of questions beside the obvious ones of who killed her, why was she submerged in water, why were her hands tied after she died? These are questions that we have no answers to and this case seems likely to never be solved, as people related to the case firsthand are dying as the years pass. Most people think that the killer was the man she went on a date with, with some people thinking that he could have actually come to apologise, but things went downhill and an argument would result in her death. It seems like too much of a coincidence for an unidentified man to be visiting her the night she supposedly died, but we don't know for sure. Her killer is known as the Christmas Ribbon Killer, and he is still yet to be brought to justice. On April 3rd of 1943, a 14-year-old girl named Gloria Sullivan would make a phone call to her friend and they would arrange plans to go shopping for Easter clothes later that day. Her friend arrived at Gloria's house shortly after the call. She would knock on the door, but get no response. She tried for a little bit, but still no answer. So she left and returned home. Later that day, Gloria's father arrived home after an eight hour shift, coming home ready to care for his foster daughter. But when he arrived, he would hear a loud noise coming from within the home. As he stepped closer and closer to his house, he realized that it was actually just the radio at max volume. He then opened the door, entered the house, and began to make his way to the kitchen where the radio was located. Never in a million years would Patrick expect to see what he saw that day. The body of Gloria would lay dead in the kitchen with multiple stab wounds. Once the police arrived, the body was examined. There were 20 stab wounds on Gloria's body, 14 in the back, five in the chest, and one in the throat. Defensive wounds were covered all along her arms and hands. She was fully clothed with curlers in her hair, and thankfully, no signs of sexual assault. While the back door was locked, the front door was unlocked. But the thing is, is that there were no other signs of forced entry around the home. There was no evidence of a robbery. Nothing was taken. Nothing was disturbed. Hell, they even found $200 in the kitchen. Gloria was stabbed with two knives. One was a paring knife and the other was a long bladed butcher's knife. Both of these were found at the scene and Patrick confirmed they were from the home's kitchen. Along with the knives, a bloody handprint was found in the bathroom. Gloria's hairbrush was found in the bathroom as well, and the hairbrush had long blonde hair entangled in it, which was suspicious considering Patrick had gray hair while Gloria had brown. In the bathroom were also bloody towels, and a bloody fingerprint was also found at the scene. Let's take a look at the possible timeline. In the morning, Gloria had asked Patrick for money to go shopping. He then gave her some money and left for work at around 8 a.m. Gloria then phoned a friend at 9 a.m. and shortly after, a delivery was made to her house. After the delivery, a neighbor spoke to Gloria at around 9.30 a.m. It would then be at 10.20 a.m. when Gloria's friend would come over and then leave at around 10.30 a.m. Patrick then arrived home at 5.15 p.m. With this timeline in mind, 
Let's look at the possible times the murder could have taken place. The last time someone spoke to Gloria was at 9.30 a.m. If she was speaking to someone for, let's say, 10 minutes, then she would have been alone from 9.40 a.m. to 10.20 a.m. When Gloria's friend arrived at the door, she reported that the screen door was locked from the inside. She knocked for about five or so minutes and eventually gave up. She attempted to look through the window but couldn't see anything since the curtains were shut tight. She also reported that she couldn't remember if the radio was blasting or not. Statement from the friend led the investigators to believe that Gloria was actually killed within this time period due to the fact that the screen door was locked. The suspect list had a few possible names on it. The first one was a magazine salesman who happened to be in the area at the time of Gloria's murder. This guy had an alibi though, so he was eventually let off. None of Gloria's friends or close acquaintances could potentially identify who this killer could be. The police then decided to go to the public shortly after, requesting any sort of information about people's whereabouts. Shortly after this, a witness came forward saying that there was a man named Clarence on a bus that happened to be in the area near where Gloria was murdered. Clarence is Gloria's biological father. The police then quickly started looking for Clarence, even going to Gloria's sister, who unfortunately didn't know about Clarence's whereabouts. The police also continued to search the house for any more clues, and they would discover then Gloria's diary. Reading through this would result in another suspect being added to the list, as they had discovered that someone had tried to flirt with Gloria in the days leading up to her murder. This person was questioned and released, however. Funding for the investigation slowly stopped and the case went cold. The search for Clarence would reach a dead end and he would never be found. Clarence passed away in 1950, never being questioned about his biological daughter's murder. Patrick continued trying to live his life, but with the loss of his daughter, it proved to be very difficult. He'd even tried to get in contact with Clarence so that way he could legally adopt Gloria, but this failed since he still treated Gloria as if he were his own. The murder took a big toll on him and he would constantly ask investigators for any updates on the investigation. These updates, unfortunately, would never come. When Gloria was laid to rest, he asked for one word to be put on the gravestone. The word he chose was daughter. Patrick died suddenly of a heart attack four years after Gloria's death. In 2016, a 66-year-old man named Suomi Shunaga was reported missing by his siblings. It was discovered that he actually went missing a year prior, but his siblings did not report it in hopes he would return to them. Nothing came from this case, and he remained missing until five years later in August of 2020. Suomi's younger sister had decided to take it upon herself to use her missing brother's room since it hasn't been occupied in five years. Due to the abandonment, she would start cleaning everything out, and to her shock, she discovered a human skeleton. The police were obviously called, and they eventually arrived to the home. The skeleton had no clothes on, and there was an immediate attempt to try and identify who this was. The police were unable to determine the age, sex, or even identity of the skeleton, but it was pretty clear that this person had been dead for a very long time. While they couldn't exactly determine what caused the death, they were pretty certain that this was the brother that was missing for five years. 
It's reported that the house they live in was relatively small, and that it's bizarre that the siblings were able to live with the corpse of their brother for five whole years. Some people that have been put in the unfortunate presence of a dead body have reported that the scent of it is very extreme, and that you can smell it from some distance away, making the fact that they were living with a corpse for that long even more crazy. Another thing to consider is the fact that it seems they didn't check their brother's room for a whole five years. It sounds like the corpse was quite easy to discover, as it didn't take long once the sister was actually in the room. So. Did they not bother to check the room before reporting him missing? Sumio was 66, so it's most likely that his death was natural causes, but I guess you can't exactly rule out the more sinister option, which would be one of the siblings murdering their brother. It's also even possible that that might not even be Sumio. That could just literally be some random human skeleton, but it's probably Sumio. Another possibility being brought up was that they knew he was dead but didn't report it so that way they could collect pension. This probably isn't the case though because they went out to report him missing after it had been a year, so it probably wasn't some money scheme. As far as I can tell, there had been no updates to the case. The final conclusion seems to be though that it's most likely Sumio, but his cause of death will remain unknown and is most likely going to remain that way. Big thank you to my Patreon supporters, Mari Gan, Gary Flick, Neil, K4Silver, and Alex Rod. I hope you enjoyed.